the leader is there to hold the light in the dark to show the way forward. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. You've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gunfighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connects him to other moments in his life during battle. The story of transformation is powerful. Harry Moffat is a veteran of the Special Air Service Regiment. He served the SASR for many, many years, leading elite operators in intense combat deployments to the Middle East as a team leader. He left the regiment as a team commander 25 years after passing selection in 1990. This is Harry's second appearance on Life on the Line. I first spoke to him in Season 3. Four helicopters landing under gunfire, coming in, hitting the aircraft, landing at the same time and just taking a split second to look to the left and the right out of the helo and see guys launching out of helos and running towards the gunfire. That's a magic moment. Last time we spoke about the psychology of being an elite soldier, leadership in high-tempo deployments, the cost to one's family life, and preparing oneself for the next stage of life post-service. I brought Harry back on the show to talk about his music and some more about his time in uniform, some more highs and lows of overseas deployments, more lessons of leadership, and the work he's doing today. Harry Moffat, welcome back to Life on the Line. Thanks for having me, Alex. I originally wanted to have this chat in person in Melbourne, Harry, over a beer or two, but world circumstances have left us at the mercy of a good internet connection. Yeah, I owe you a beer at the Kelvin Club. We'll sort that out when this chaos is over. Let's start today's chat with things on the home front, Harry, on a lighter note, or a rock note, I should say. Keen listeners of this podcast, and of course the Unforgiving 60, will have heard music by legendary SAS original rock band, The Externals. Tell me more about the origins of the band and your role in it. Yeah, sure. So the externals, uh, I always claim the world's only special operations or special forces original rock band. We were formed back in 1991, I think it was. We, a few of us, myself, Matt Stevens and Scotty Newman, we went to a rock show watching a band called Thrombus and were and thought, how hard could that be? So we uh, went home, got a bunch of guitars and drums together. None of us had played and uh, started jamming and. Uh, we were pretty crap. We used to play up the Gratwick Club and Copeman Hall at, on the barracks, and then we graduated to the Swanbourne Hotel in the early 90s. And we were playing cover songs at that stage, and we were, we were terrible. People were throwing things at us and booing and dissing. So we thought, oh, we'll, we'll do some originals. And it turned out that it's pretty bloody easy to write a song. It's not that hard. I don't know what everyone gasses on about. Unless you're Mozart, I suppose it's more challenging. But uh, since then, we've been an original rock band put out six albums and toured around Australia on occasion, and we're still going, you know, 20, 30 years later. That's incredible. And to clarify, you're the songwriter, as you said, and easy, apparently, and the lead singer. 
Yeah, that, well, it's, it, it really isn't that hard. You have a few beers, grab a guitar and uh, strum a few things. And, and, you know, songwriting is really just about kind of creating a moment for things to pop into your mind and be creative. So the more VB you drink, it's directly proportional to the uh, volume of lyrics and music that come out. I remember one of our early gigs, I was playing guitar and singing and I was terrible at both, remain uh, that today. And the guitar just dropped off my shoulders, clanked onto the stage. And Matt Stevens said that was the defining moment of the externals once I stopped playing guitar. So we, we turned from a three piece into a four piece uh, from that point. Well, beer certainly is a recurring theme in many of your songs. There's also deployment references or that kind of thing as well. And there's just a sense of camaraderie and it's an outlook on life. And sometimes it's quite, you know, lighthearted or sometimes it, you hint at some more deeper reflections. Yeah, definitely. We try to keep it lighthearted. We're, we're influenced by bands like uh, the Celibate Rifles and the Cosmic Psychos, two great Australian bands. And it is lighthearted, tongue-in-cheek stuff. You know, of course, we don't promote uh, drinking to excess or to the detriment of your health or anything, but a few beers is always great fun. It's always accompanied our shows. On occasion, I have written a few songs about more the deeper, more emotional elements of life and experience. I wrote, uh, wrote a song before Timor kicked off in about 96 about Timor-Leste and where it was heading. And it turned out to be relatively, I hesitate to use the word prophetic, but I don't know uh, what else to say. So we are influenced in some of our music by our experience in our service with the SAS and with the military more broadly. So it's um, hard not for those things to pop into your head when you're looking for lyrics and what not. It's just an interesting mental image. We've heard guests on this podcast, including yourself, talk about selection and the rigorous training, reinforcement cycle, and even between combat deployments, say in this century, you're going back, you're training, preparing for the next gig, whatever. That sort of uber professionalism and intensity. And then it's great just to picture downtime, picking up a guitar or a drum kit, heading down to the pub and just jamming away. It's just such a great mixture. Great release. And I think that the more can I say, adaptive people in those types of environments, no matter what elite environments you're talking about, I use that word elite reservedly as well, you generally find they've got those kind of adaptive behaviours external to their focus, whether it's playing guitar, writing, I'd say more kind of philosophical pursuits, if I can you know, kind of put them under that banner. Where does the name come from? The externals, good question. So back in the late 80s when counterterrorism roles were being developed globally, our kind of contribution in the SAS, one of the, I suppose, components or compartments of counterterrorism capability was these kind of grey roles where loose term undercover type roles our capability in that domain was called, the team was called the Externals. And I think they thought that was a pretty rubbish name at the time. They, they changed the name to something else. So uh, we pinched it and we thought it was appropriate. We were playing around the rock scene of Perth at that time with um, punk bands and less hardcore bands. And we were the fish out of water. We were the externals. You know, we were different to everyone else. Everyone else was smoking pot and doing drugs and bloody, uh, having their way with different people and all the rest of it. And we were just doing push-ups and drinking VB. We were pretty straight down the line kind of guys. So it kind of suited us. I think it still suits us today to a degree if you get to know us individually. We'll come back to the band and what you guys are up to today. For now, let's move ahead to some of your experiences overseas. First, here's a snippet from Bush Ranger Rock. Rock and roll has always been a lot to me, a soundtrack to my life. There's playing endlessly, the rhythm defines a repetition of life. A cause to struggle, not a cause to 
When people think of special forces operating overseas, they typically think of the guns, grenades, choppers, stealth patrols, kinetic engagements, death and destruction. Cricket bats aren't necessarily the first thing that spring to mind. Let's talk about the cricket bats you took to war, Harry. How did that all start? Actually, I'll just pick up on something you said, Alex. There is a stereotypical view of special operations or special forces that people have, that direct action, grenades, guns, etc., the sexy kind of Call of Duty stuff. I've always kind of bristled a little at that. And I think we special operations have kind of developed into more of a commando type of force in these direct action kinetic stuff. You know, the real essence of special ops for me really remains in the David Sterling stealth in the background. I grew up in special operations. If you fired a shot in anger, then you'd probably been compromised or found out. And I really like that notion that we do our job in the dark, in the background, and then get out without anybody knowing that we're there. That takes it right back to, say, Vietnam era when they're sneaking through the jungle. They don't want to get in contact, those SAS patrols. They just want to find the enemy positions, report back on that. It wasn't about taking out people. Absolutely. It's a great point about Vietnam, and that plays out across multiple domains. I grew up on the SAS in Northern Ireland. Now, notwithstanding, I, I don't really have a position either for or against the war in Northern Ireland. However, a lot of the work they did there was behind the scenes, the grey ops type of stuff. I just like to remind people of that because it's actually at the essence of what I think the best special ops can be. But the cricket bats, yes, they're um, the objects of uh, much interest at the moment, which is great because I'm really enjoying having fun with them. So very briefly, the war bats, 11 bats from 11 deployments over 11 years and 11's a number synonymous with cricket as anyone who follows the game at least would know. And it was my habit to take a cricket bat and ball on all of our deployments um, and have my colleagues and peers and um, other people I served with sign the bats at the end. And they're a terrific compilation of not only my service and the service, I believe, of the regiment from 2001 right through to, to end ops 2013, uh, or not end ops, but the, you know, the kind of the bulk of the operational period. But they've been great fun, mate. I didn't really realise until I was having a beer with a mate of mine and we were sitting in the carport and I was just getting stuff ready to move to Melbourne from Perth. And he said, oh, it's not a bad collection you've got here. You should chuck them on a wall somewhere. And um, it was kind of then the penny dropped that these dusty collection of bats might be of interest. And they certainly have been. We've had a display or an exhibition in the Shrine of Remembrance here in Melbourne. A few of them are currently touring regional areas of Melbourne on display at various uh, community centres around um, the towns of Victoria. I read somewhere that you once invited some Taliban fighters for a match. Yeah, so 2005, I think that was about three or four. We'd been out in the Cod Valley, an area about, I think, about 80 k's north of Tarrant well behind kind of what you might call enemy line or held area. We were there for about 40 or 50 days. The valley, if I can paint a quick picture, is about 20, 25 kilometres long by about five or more kilometres wide at its widest, a real nexus where the enemy were trafficking you know, guns, drugs, money, people, information through. Anyway, we used to retreat back for a couple of few days into the middle of the valley and just relax, fix up some vehicles. We're on a vehicle patrol and do some communicating and whatnot. And so we used to play a game of cricket, just break out a game of cricket for a bit of a relaxo. Our interpreters would be listening in on the radios, listening to the enemy movements and, and what they were talking about. 
Um, they're talking about watermelons, bombs, talking about grain, bullets, etc. You know, you can imagine. And they're just on open motor rollers you can pick up on through the internet. We were playing cricket and the interpreter said, hey, Harry, these Taliban guys, these bad guys reckon you shit cricketers. <laughs> and of course, I took immediate offence. I've been playing cricket a long time. But um, yeah, so we got into a conversation. You know, tell them to come down and play us in a game of cricket. And they refused, citing that we'd call the planes and bomb them if they came out of the hills, which we probably would have. But we got into this two-way discussion about coming down, playing us in a game of cricket, and whoever wins gets to stay in the valley and the other uh, mob have to, have to clear out. In a way, a, a nice nostalgic touch. That would have been a uh, Germans and allies both coming out of the trenches sort of moment <laughs> to have a get-together and a hit around if that yeah. had eventuated. Just to paint the mental picture, what's your specialty, batter, bowler? An average batter. I, I played with Applecross Cricket Club for decades. I'm still a, I still consider myself a member there. My kind of average bullseye cricket ability was batting at 10 or 11 and first change bowler. But generally, most of the guys at the Applecross Cricket Club are pretty unfit, so it wasn't hard for me to, to bowl long spells of bowling. If we take the cricket bats back to the Call of Duty SAS operating mode, you wouldn't have ever taken them outside the wire on patrol, just an extra hand-to-hand -hand weapon if need be? <laughs> Funny you should say that. All of the bats have been outside the wire, whether by design or by chance, uh, and all been played pretty much outside the wire. By design, sometimes I'd think we'd get towards the end of a deployment. I thought this one hasn't got out of the outside the wire yet. So I'd grab the bat in later stages when we were doing a lot of helicopter operations. I'd carry the bat, yes, to go to your point, onto the aircraft and the Americans who are generally the ones who, who flew us in and out and around the place. You could just see them looking at me going, what the hell are these Australians? They're fucking crazy, you know. Passing through their minds, they thought we probably used the bats to bring people to account. But um, I used to just slip it in underneath the seating in the rear just to say that we'd got it out. Not exactly uh, street legal, but you've got to have a bit of fun in these circumstances. I love that we're dispelling all these SAS stereotype illusions today that, yes, they took cricket bats beyond the wire. Why not? <laughs> Why not indeed? Yeah. And one time you even sent a CIA translator over the border to Pakistan for cricketing reasons. Yeah, so, mate, that's the very first bat. So we were in Asadabad or at a safe house or compound kind of FOB up in Asadabad sharing that with um, some US special ops and they had their, their interpreters and a guy named John was the interpreter that we were working with. We just got chatting and said, wouldn't it be great if we had a cricket bat here? We were spending a bit of time just sitting around the compound. And he said, I can get one for you. Give me $100. I'll go across the border into uh, Pakistan. We were very close to the border there. So the story there is that uh, we sent John, the interpreter, life in his own hands across the border into Pakistan, where they would have been very unhappy to, to see him. And he came back with this rubbish cricket bat rolled up in an old rug. It's an Shahid Afridi cricket bat. At that stage, had made the fastest 100 in one day cricket in 32 balls, and it kind of sported an image of Shahid Afridi on there. And you might remember Shahid, synonymous or famous for the ball biting incident. Yep. Brilliant piece of footage. 1.5 billion people watching telly, and he thought he'd get away with it. Anyway, that was the first bat, and uh, we played cricket with John and the locals and the US with that on our first uh, deployment. So special, special meaning, very first bat came from uh, across the border operations. And it's not just where the bats have been, but it's also who played them or even just who signed them. In the field, you got a range of notable people to sign them as well as the operators. Princes Philip and Harry, Prime Minister John Howard, 
Yeah, we had many prime ministers and other people, but really, mate, it's the signatures of the people that I've served with that mean the most and not just served with, but some of these men in particular who were signing the first bats were killed along the way or badly wounded and fell away. And I always kind of cast my mind back to those. Every signature on there tells a whole other labyrinth of story. They're a great artifact from that respect. Absolutely. And one happier story the bats are attached to is you took one to Yarralumla Government House on the day Mark Donaldson received his Victoria Cross. We did. Well, you already signed the bat. My kind of lasting memory or reflection of the investiture at uh, Dono's where he received the VC is what a top bloke. He didn't want the investiture to go ahead without the whole troop being there. And I hadn't actually finished that trip. I was wounded in action very early in the trip and sent home. And Dono was a few weeks later when he carried out the action that he received at four. But uh, yeah, we took it along to the investiture at Government House, had Quentin Bryce and um, Kay Rudd sign the bat, which was good. Always good to get a couple of uh, big signatures on there as well. After the investiture, we all moved into the formal area to sit down and have some food and, and a couple of drinks. And they were handing around the champagne and the boys were going, oh, this is rubbish, bloody champagne, where's a, where's a beer? And so I went out the back to the kitchen and I said to the chef, have you got any beers? And he put, um, sorry, there was a dozen of us at the table and I got a dozen crownies, got them on a platter and brought them back to the table, right? Get back there and K Rudd's sitting in my seat and I punched him in the arm, like pretty bloody hard. I said, oi! What are you doing my seat, mate? Get out. And uh, everyone burst into laughter, of course, around the table. Mr. Rudd was a bit pissed off, but he kind of got up and <laughs> offered me the chair. And I said, it's all right, mate, sit down. Sorry, sir. And called him, sir, and, and made up and stuck a crownie in his hand and didn't go down too badly. I reckon he'll remember that, uh, that incident for sure. Funnily enough, that incident didn't make it into his autobiography. Can't imagine why. <laughs> I'm sure he's got far more important things uh, going on. It was a big day. <laughs> And here's a short clip from my season two conversation with Mark Donaldson about this particular day. Government House, the Governor General, has been in the Victoria Cross on my chest, you know, and that's, it was overwhelming to a degree, that actual, you know, moment. But, but in the same time, you know, I know at the back of the room were a bunch of my mates and they seemed pretty happy for me. But, but for me, it was really a reflection of, of all the work that the guys did that day. I think about that day and I think about the cross and I go, you know what, it's not, oh, it doesn't really matter that I received a Victoria Cross. And what I mean by that is, it doesn't matter because what matters the most is, is what we did and because we would have done it anyway. Award or not, we still would have done what we did and we did it because we're a team. And that's what matters to me. Back to the chat with Harry. Dono's dealing with his own big life-changing day there, but for you guys to be there, not just for him because he's your mate, but also nice just to have a moment like that, I guess, because you'd be so often in the shadows or just not brought out to a public-facing light. So that was, you know, good way for you guys to celebrate each other and your group achievements, not just Mark specifically. Yeah, spot on. And it was foremost in Mark's mind that that occurred. And it's testament to the kind of bloke he is. He's a, uh, a ripping bloke and very empathic, and those things are really important to him. One of the highlights of the, of the decade, to be honest. Not to celebrate, just to kind of, I suppose, remember what we were doing and where we were at. Back to the bats. Over time, they became more than just fun mementos. And one of your most treasured bats today has the name on it, Sean McCarthy. Sean was an SAS signaller killed in July 2008. You mentioned Sean and the circumstances of his death briefly in our last interview, but we didn't go any further. Can we talk today, Harry, about Sean's death and what happened? On the morning 
that Sean died, we got up preparing to move south back towards Tarrancout through the Chora Valley. And um, anyone who's served up that way knows that it's probably one of the, I suppose, most blood-soaked, if I can use that dramatic term, area. The last 20 years, Australian soldiers have been working and fighting up there uh, all through the Afghan campaign. And we knew we'd be getting into a contact. And I'd been driving the day before and Sean had been in the back on the gun doing communications tasks. And in the morning, it was the kind of commonplace for us to, to swap places. And we actually tossed a coin to pick who was going to drive and who was going to sit on the gun. You know, obviously, we felt we were going to be in contact. So you wanted to be on the gun driving kind of sucks and, it, and, and you don't feel like you've got much control over the situation. Anyway, it turns out that I lost the, the toss tragically and fortuitously, I suppose. We drove south. I still reflect on whether I took a wrong turn or a right turn. The troop was dispersed out over about 500 metres and we drove over an IED, an improvised explosive device, detonated. Sean was killed instantly and the interpreter who was in the back of the LRPV or the vehicle lost both his legs, uh, or lost one in the initial blast and then I think the, the second one was removed later. So it was a, a traumatic experience to say the least, mate, and um, something I've, I've struggled with on occasion, a bit of survivor guilt and, and relived those moments over and over. Sean's name is on the bat. He never got to sign the bat, but I placed his name at the top. It has the most significance or meaning for me can't imagine what it is like to have a memory like that and to relive it over and over. But how can you know if turning left or right was going to make a difference ultimately? Yes, you know you drove over one IED, but you don't know what's around another corner or what fate could have thrown your way if you'd made a different decision. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, look, it doesn't help help anyone to kind of overanalyze these things beyond a certain point. There's no doubt that, uh, you know, occasionally you wonder. It took me quite a while to go and visit with uh, David and Mary face to face and got nothing but gratitude and, and respect for them. Uh, they've been absolutely wonderful and these things are no one means to take a wrong turn or anything. It's just, you know, that's just, these are the, the ventures of war and conflict. I've got fond memories of Sean. He's a, he was an absolute cracking bloke. Easy to say, but he absolutely was. Wasn't a big fan of cricket in as much as didn't enjoy test match cricket, which is my number one pursuit in cricket, but uh, enjoyed uh, beer and watching maybe a one day or something. But uh, he and I became quite close before then. He was training for selection. I have no doubt, absolutely no doubt in my mind that he would have uh, gone on to secure a beret. As a psychologist now, you've got to work hard like a mental gym and work hard to reframe these things in your head. And I certainly spent time with psychologists who I've become friends with in the end. Reframing it in my mind, I'm very comfortable where it sits now at peace with myself. That is really great to hear, Harry. And you didn't walk away from that incident uninjured physically either. You were a casualty that day too. That's probably part of the complex range of issues. I was lightly wounded, to be honest. It was myself and another guy in the front who both suffered quite superficial wounds. I was recovering fine in the week or so afterwards until I contracted a bone infection. My leg and um, my meat and three veg all swelled up irrecognisably and, and was sent home where the doctors were contemplating removing my leg. So kind of second order effects, I guess, the infection, but it certainly did give me cause to reflect on my career. At this stage, you know, it'd been long, almost a decade on 
back-to-back-to-back-to-back deployments and I had a lot of time laying by myself in bed rest at home contemplating what what the future held so it's um, a very tough time there's no way of escaping it a lot of soul searching and um, talk therapy which really helped that's the key ultimately that reflection or questioning did not deter you you went back and had a few more years of active service and deployments after that Yep, I uh, had great support at the unit from um, physios, doctors, psychologists, uh, you know, and I wasn't the only one in rehab. There's lots of guys are wounded and in different degrees. You know, rehab is a lonely place, but I've got to say rehab, again, if you frame it right in your own mind, it gives you another purpose, another sense of purpose. I recovered reasonably quickly. Once I got my health back and the extreme antibiotics and I was taking kind of low-level cancer treatments at one stage to get rid of the infection, once I'd been through that, I just turned my mind to recovery and we were deployed uh, about 12 months later, I think eight months later. So tough time, but uh, at peace with it now. And am I right that Mark Donaldson was also in that car or was he in a different vehicle? No, no, Dono was further up the hill. They'd broken right and headed up the hill and actually gone the way that we should have gone if you, if you want to kind of analyse it. Moving on from that specific incident, but talking about the psychology, I guess, of reframing incidents like that, because that would not be the only challenging moment in your career. And I'm not looking to discuss another specific one, but you and all your teammates would have had moments like that of trauma of some description or a confronting moment. Did you feel you acquired the skill to recontextualize, put that memory, that experience in a new framework while you were serving, or was that something you could only do when you got out? Well, that's a a brilliant question and a big one, but to kind of capture as briefly as I can, I am unsure or not convinced that we do that as well as what we can in the ADF more broadly to stop and reflect and account on occasion as a group or as a bunch of individuals, that's a behavior that we probably need to get better at. Certainly during all of that, those years of deploying back to back, I was on 11 deployments, other guys have done more. And you could see towards the end of that decade, people were getting tired, units were getting tired. And I think that stopping to pause and reflect and take account of what's going on physically, socially, psychologically, even philosophically in people's minds would have been of huge benefit. But it just seemed that the uh, hamster wheel just was unrelenting and wouldn't stop. You're a better coach the second time around, as Lee Matthews says, and I've certainly personally taken stock and and spent a lot of time reflecting. I've written notes and journals, and I find that very therapeutic. I find it therapeutic to talk about things, and I would strongly encourage anyone to do the same. It's a release. It's like releasing a, a gate. So I hope in the future, and goes part to the business that we now run, that reflexivity or reflection as a ongoing, almost a gym exercise should be incorporated into everyone and every business and every group's working battle rhythm. We do have psychologists that do in-country, out-of-country debriefing and whatnot, but the buy-in is low. They're still at that stage, and uh, hopefully that, that'll change in the future. Well, it sounds like you've appreciated the importance of release from the earlier stages of your career, from you know the externals as a form of release to what we're talking about just now. Let's move on from the cricket, Sean McCarthy and the Middle East, and talk more on leadership and transition. First, here's a clip from I Don't Believe.
There's a leadership question I want to ask you in a minute, Harry, but I think we should first update listeners on your post-service career. For full context, we recorded our first interview in July 2018, but your episode did not come out until August 2019. As you know, I worked in the UK in 2019 for my day job, so I was recording my season three episodes well ahead of time while I was still in Australia. When we had that conversation, you were still studying, and by the time your episode finally came out, you were a registered psychologist. That's right, yeah. So I, I like to say I was the oldest psychology master's student in Australia at the time of well would have been. I finished in early 2019, I'm still on the reserve books, and started a, a business as a, as a psychologist, as a practicing psychologist. Since that time, we've just been working on building the business. The business is called Stoughton. We're a human performance consultancy group, and we work on proving individual team and organizational performance through consultancy and development. The last 12 months has been lots to reflect on equally on the transition. Transition's tough, there's no doubt about it, but you've got to get off the couch and go out and take it on. There's lots of support out there. Sometimes I think a little too much, but I think you've got to be really proactive in the way that many veterans are in their careers. They've got to maintain that. And so we've come a long way in 12 months. It's been um, it's been good and you civilians aren't too bad. You know, you're actually not a bad um, crowd to be around. Thanks, mate. Yeah, no worries at all. There's a quote at the end of your email signature, humans are more important than hardware. So you're really driving at, yes, at maximizing human performance, coaching, all that stuff. And I imagine in a curious time that we're in now, we're recording in April 2020, this rising situation with COVID-19, that kind of structure and maximizing or optimization of human performance is going to be something that's needed at peak more than ever. Right now, we're seeing expressions of interest from from businesses and people focused on mental health and well-being as one part. But um, the performance, human performance part, I think will grow. It's it's larger in the US. Our model is to embed people into businesses rather than run workshops and one-offs. I don't think they help. I think um, you know the psychological research shows that uh, you know, for example, therapies take you know 10, 12 times to embed before you see behavioural change. And I think exactly the same thing happens with teams and organisations. So I, th- I hope we see a lot more investment, not from a business perspective, but I just think for the good of people inside a lot of these businesses, we see a lot more investment in this area. Notwithstanding the impacts of the, the current crises, economic and biological, I think the wave of technology that we, you know, some people would say, Alain de Botton, for example, might say that we're just at the start of the technological revolution. As humans interact more with technology and become more, I suppose, embedded with technology or more interactive with technology, it's going to leave, we think, a bit of a vacuum around human engagement and um, what it means to be human will change. We're positioned, we're ready to help in that void. The refrain that humans are more important than hardware really goes to that point. It'll be interesting to watch sort of how that grows and changes for you, say, over five, 10-year period, because imagine everyone trying to work from home and all this stuff 10, 15 years ago. It'd be a completely different challenge and landscape. Yes, I knew the internet was around then, but not to the same bandwidth or capability levels. Yet this, we're able to respond to this crisis in this way now, and that's just due to the nature of technology and society we're in imagine what challenges arise in the future and what normality, uh, what normal societal practices and workplace practices are in the future and how that continues to evolve. And you have to continue to respond to that. Yeah, we will. And so we're researching and we're involved with a couple of organizations that are, that are researching this exact thing. No one can predict the future. No one could have predicted 12 months ago what was going to happen today. Certainly can't predict what's going to happen in the next month. Rather, in times of uncertainty or times of chaos, if you like, 
it's not so much about trying to forecast the future, although that's important so we can stay on a vector of you know rational decision-making, et cetera. But I think it's important to focus on what's important. And what's important is humans and human interaction and human flourishing. We are committed to that in our values and in the way we practice business. It's focused on human-centric type of services, if you like, and certainly philosophically, we are focused on humans. I can really see a time in the future that's not a dystopian view, but more of an optimistic view where humans are flourishing at a level that we are only just starting to understand we can at work, at home. But there's a lot of things in our way and most, well, a lot of that is bloody technology. <laughs> it's kind of defeating us from within. We perfect what we practice and what I find a lot of people practicing is being on their phone and sorting through apps. And the more you do that, the more your neurons fire to be rewarded by that. Henceforth, the more you do of it in turn. So the focus may change through this period. Well, coronavirus is inspiring my last leadership question for you today, Harry. (laughs) We are in a global crisis at the moment, as we've acknowledged, and it will have severe lasting effects on the global economy. And who knows what lasting effects it'll have on us as a society. And God, who knows how long it's going to go on for as well. There's a lot of talk in the media, on social media, wherever you like, there's a lot of talk on leadership in a crisis like this because everyone on Twitter has an opinion. Everyone on Facebook is suddenly an expert. Everyone around the world looks at whoever their leader is and has a strong opinion on them, either of support or criticism. And I don't want to get bogged down in party politics or policy decisions because it literally changes one day to the next anyway. But as a matter of principle in times like this, what lessons of leadership can our leaders take from military leadership? from the prime minister to state premiers to your average person who's a leader in the local community or neighborhood, or even just ahead of your household? What are some strategies and leadership principles you think we should turn to for calm in a crisis? Yeah, leadership's an interesting area. So the first thing I'd say is that the overarching principle that I've learned from my time and in my opinion, and what I've read and researched through psychology and organizational psychology is that leadership isn't leadership arrives. Inherent in that principle is that we need to take the focus off of the so-called leaders, the people who are, I would say, managing situations and responsible for resource allocation and decisions around that, and place the construct or the concept of leadership back into the teams, into the people. We need to prepare people for when leadership arrives. And it's not always going to be the person who's had the Harvard education. It's not always going to be the person who's had 50 years experience doing X. It's probably going to be, invariably, going to be the least skilled, least experienced individual who'll end up dealing at the coalface with the issues at hand. And I think that's where leadership as a principle stands in my mind. When we teach leadership, based on my and and other people in the business's experience, we teach leadership from a perspective that the leader is there to hold the light in the dark, to show the way forward, and inevitably the leader will fall and someone needs to be able to move forward, seize the light and continue to show the way in the dark. And that goes to exactly the same principle. We seem to, in modern society, and I see this in the military, spend an inordinate amount of money, resources, and time dedicated to teaching people in higher positions. 
I'd like to see that flipped on its head and see a lot more of that money and time and resource spent on teaching our younger, less experienced people in leadership. And what does that mean? It means that we need to provide them rather than kind of expertise from MBA houses and LinkedIn and wherever else you can get that from and get them encouraging and empowering them to lead in real time and fail and be there to correct them and reflect with them on what they're doing right. So that goes to a kind of second principle is that it takes a bit of courage and a bit of leap of faith to promote people ahead of their time and give them the opportunity to safe fail. And I know in the regiment, we did that more often than not, either through necessity, but the Navy SEALs I know had a principle, this two down or one down kind of principle, I forget what the, the uh, where they force the responsibility, deliberately force it down to the next rung before people are ready or to kind of ready them. One of the common reflections I've heard from speaking to operators over the years is by the time they do a course in, you know, so-called leadership or, or the next promotion course, one of the common refrains is, I wish I knew this 10 years ago. And I think that yeah, it's a profound statement when you pick that apart. So one piece of experience, we conducted a parachute night insertion in Afghanistan. We'd been tricking up a, a mission for literally for a year night insertion parachute into uh, the Badlands, catch a bad guys with their pants down, which we did. It's great, uh, a successful mission. But the guy who led that mission at the critical time was probably one of the most least experienced operators in the team. And the leadership, so-called leadership, were kind of in the wrong part of the, the target area. Not in the wrong, just uh, it was complex. But yeah, it just goes to show that uh, we need to prepare everybody for when leadership arrives. Look, you could talk all day about leadership. It's like bums. Everybody's got an opinion. Everyone's got a bum. But I think that there'll be a requirement in the future to really change the way that we look at the whole construct of leadership. I want to quickly finish on the note we started, the externals. Leaving aside global pandemic and social distancing, are you guys still jamming and gigging away? We are. And um it's as a psychologist, one of my uh, therapies is to suggest a lot of listening to the externals albums, very therapeutic. Yeah, we are, mate. And look, we don't play as much as we'd like to. Serendipitously, we're all on the East Coast now. Matt Stevens, the atomic bass player, is up in uh, Newport in New South Wales. And in Melbourne here, we've got Davros and Nico, who are long-time participants of the band. They're from Perth originally, so it's kind of worked out nicely. And we, uh, we jam not as often as we'd like. We had some gigs lined up for this year with uh, with the Cosmic Psychos, but they'll be postponed. But look, we're as dedicated and as um, energetic as we've ever been on stage. We played a run of shows about 18 months ago at the Tote and the St Kilda Bolo and uh, down at Frankston, and we had an absolutely ripping time. We're not going anywhere soon. The albums are half written and some uh, pre-recordings done. We just need to kind of get the time and bandwidth together to uh, finish that off. But uh, very keen to get another album out and more. I want to be going when I've got wearing a nappy. So we'll be rocking it out with the oldies at some stage down the future if we live that long. <laughs> Well, if writing's easy, I'm sure the albums will keep flowing. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, mate, like I said, this writing caper is not that difficult. I listen to some people talking about writing music and they turn it into some kind of mad feat of engineering. And really, it's about freeing your brain up. It's probably a good point to leave it on. It's for all of us, you know, to just find space to free your brain up and wander off, meander off, be distracted, but be deeply distracted into something you're really passionate about wander off. If you need a beer or a cup of tea or a friend to do that with, do it. 
I remember a surfing mate of mine who's probably not the philosophical type, to be honest, uh, said to me that, you know, life is about finding good waves and spending as much time as you can in them. And I thought that's a profound sentiment. You know, life's about creating sweet spots and then seeking to spend as much time as you can in those sweet spots. And for me, music and surfing and uh, a few other things, you need a few tools in your toolbox. And the externals is definitely one of that. When I'm in the room with the other guys and we're playing cheesy three-quarter blasters for the externals um, there's not many better places to be in my mind harry it's always a pleasure to chat thanks for coming back on the podcast to share your insights wisdom and good humor thanks very much thanks alex more of that track in just a moment That was my second conversation with SAS veteran Harry Moffat. Be sure to listen to his original interview with me in season three. You know, we need a bit of narcissism in people so that uh, when they're standing on the edge of the ramp at 30,000 feet at night, about to jump out with a range of people, potentially with someone strapped to their chest, that they are that confident that they're going to get it done. He also appeared in Christmas on the Line, volume two. We're on... 24-7, particularly as team leaders, you're either sleeping, planning, or on the job. We also referenced a rather famous SAS veteran in this chat. Jump back to Season 2, 2018, and listen to Number 36, Mark Donaldson, VC, for my conversation with the Victoria Cross recipient. People will die. It might be you. It might be your mate. It might be the brand new guy. It's going to happen at some stage because there's lots of bullets that fly around or there's, there's dangerous work that we do. Harry and I also discussed the Australian SAS during the Vietnam War. For a Vietnam-era SAS story, listen to number 18, Don Barnby, Volume 1 and Volume 2, to hear a phantom of the jungle share his experiences with Thomas Kay. Listening for enemy, looking for enemy signs and all this sort of stuff, not knowing what's around the next tree, around the next bend. And if you want a more in-depth backstory on SAS original rock band The Externals, listen to the episode who sings wins in season one of the Unforgiving 60 podcast, hosted by former SAS officers Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. The externals also have their music on Spotify, so go give them a listen. Follow this podcast at Life on the Line Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, and at LOTL Pod on Twitter. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Rate us five stars in Apple Podcasts and subscribe to never miss an episode. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Theme music by Dan Van Werkhoven. All other music in this episode by The Externals. Our closing track today is I Can Taste You. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.
Don't you?